morning. How's everybody doing today? Awesome. Fantastic. Good, good words. Good words. Hey guys, this morning we're going to be talking about, um, I think, a timely topic, and that's going to be living as if there is no tomorrow. Today we're also going to be celebrating communion and remembering the death and resurrection of our Savior, and so uh, hopefully you guys got your communion cups as you came in the room today. If you're watching online, I encourage you to get some juice, juice and crackers and be ready to celebrate communion with us here this morning. If you're a student of the Word and a student of the end times, you will probably know that one of the things that characterizes the end times is wars. It says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And uh, last week we had the opportunity to hear from Edward Amaya from Far Reaching Ministries about some of the ministry they are doing around the world today. Um, it's an organization that, that, that we love, we're great friends with, and they're actually operating in five different active war zones as of today. Uh, doing ministry and bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that are suffering. But um, we uh, talked about the Ukraine a little bit and uh, had the opportunity to go to a meeting with them last Tuesday and I just wanted to give you guys an update on kind of what's happening there and uh, ways that we can get involved. But obviously, if you've been watching the news, the war is escalating, things are getting worse, more and more people are getting hurt. And uh, the biggest, biggest issue that, that the country is facing and that um, the world is facing to help is the humanitarian crisis, which is huge and growing. As of last Tuesday, um, they said that about two million or so people have uh, fled Ukraine to the borders of the country, most of them at the Polish border, which there's currently over, uh, two, around two million people there, mostly women and children, who have fled the fighting taking place in the country. Most of those women and children have been sent by their husbands who have stayed behind to fight in the country and to try and repel this, uh, this evil invasion. And so these women and children have been uh, just really put in their cars and said drive to the border. And many of them drove until they ran out of gas and they would have to carry their babies and what little belongings they were able to take with them for upwards of 20 mile hikes to get to the border. And it is currently uh, very cold there and snowing and really the worst kind of weather you can expect. And so the needs there are great for food, for water, um, warm clothing, as I said, due to the cold weather. But there's also many still trapped in the country. And so there's also teams, uh, missionary teams, going into the country, uh, into the fighting to evacuate people that are still trapped there. There's a lot of orphanages. Um, where the kids have been abandoned. Um, heard a couple stories of uh, a team that was in country, and uh, they were going through one of the areas that had been uh, shelled and, and, and really under difficult fighting, and they heard babies crying. And so they went to what was a damaged orphanage, and they found that there was 30 babies that had just been abandoned in this orphanage. The workers had just fled for their own lives. And so um, it's, it's tough. And then, of course, the people that are going into the country to help evacuate those that are suffering, uh, the needs are great there because they need protective equipment, uh, vests, helmets, and stuff because they're going into uh, active combat um, areas. And so obviously the greatest need in Ukraine right now, especially with these two uh, issues, is, is financial support. 
Um, there's many organizations that are there in country and working. Uh, Far-reaching ministries is one of them. But uh, they're the organization that as a church we are personally supporting. And so we did take an offering last week specifically for that. And if you would like to uh, continue to contribute to the Ukraine outreach with Far-reaching ministries, uh, we just uh, ask that you would make a, a donation above and beyond your normal giving uh, in our app. There's a drop-down that says Ukraine outreach if you'd like to be a part of that. And uh, one of the reasons we uh, really appreciate Far-Reaching Ministries is administratively, uh, they're covered. So when you do uh, give money towards outreaches like this, 100% of those funds literally go to the supplies and the needs on the ground there. The second greatest need in the Ukraine right now is hands, uh, people, to deliver the food, to deliver the water and clothing to those that are in need on the border. And uh, it's uh, people with time, people with time to go, availability, um, obviously, people with uh, certain special skill sets um, to go into country, uh, people with medical training like EMTs, nurses, doctors, um, to really go and help on the ground there. And so we're actually waiting to get some more details on uh, sending teams. Uh, I don't know if the Lord wants us to send teams here from Hosanna, um, and we don't exactly know what the composition of that's gonna look like yet. They said they're about 30 days out from some of those details, but if you are interested um, in going to the Ukraine, being sent to help out with any of this, we are gonna uh, be taking your guys' information so that we can let you know what the needs are and see if there's a fit there with all of that. And so just call the church office and let us know if you're interested, maybe in the next month or two months to uh, actually go to the Ukraine and uh, be a part of helping on the ground there. But, so as far as today and getting in the word, um, yeah, I really wanted to talk about what if there was no tomorrow? You know, that word tomorrow is a, is a, word, for, a word that refers to the day that will come after today. And most of us uh, don't think about tomorrow as much as maybe we should because we take tomorrow for granted, you know? Um, every single one of you that is here this morning and watching online, um, for all of your lives, tomorrow has always come. Because yesterday, you thought there's a tomorrow and here you are, right? Tomorrow came. Um, today we expect tomorrow to come and so we make plans and move on with our lives and because tomorrow has been so consistent, we often confidently say, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll get to it tomorrow. I'll put in the time tomorrow because we're so uh, confident that tomorrow is gonna come. But the Bible tells us very clearly that none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Nobody knows that tomorrow is definitely gonna come. And Wednesday night I mentioned that when we are young, we have a tendency to think we have endless tomorrows, right? The future seems unlimited, and we think tomorrows will always come. And uh, you know, we can sometimes think that those that are older than us you know, have experienced endless tomorrows. You know? um, I read a little uh, story about a little boy who said, Grandpa, were you on the ark? And the grandpa kind of chuckled. He goes, of course I wasn't on the ark. And the little boy had this confused look on his face and was like, well, then how did you survive the flood? So sometimes when we're younger, our perception of time can be skewed. But as we get older, we develop a sense that we have fewer tomorrows than we once did. You know, when I turned 30 years old, I was working at Chili's as a waiter. And uh, I remember it was my birthday, and I came in, and people were saying, happy birthday, Nathan, happy birthday. I'm like, oh, thanks so much. And there was this young girl there, probably about 16 years old, who was the host, and she was like, oh, happy birthday, Nathan. You know, how old are you? And I said, oh, I just turned 30. And she goes, oh, my dad just turned 40. <laughs> and I went, wow, I now feel closer to old than I do to young. So um, the truth is, is that one day, 
One day we'll all run out of tomorrows. One day we will run out of tomorrows. And many in the Ukraine in the last few weeks have um, gone to sleep. And many of them went to sleep on one night and woke up the next day with no job, no place of employment, no home, no city, no infrastructure. And one day it was all gone. And that's really the reality for all of us is none of us know with certainty that tomorrow will come. None of us know with certainty what tomorrow will bring. It's just a fact of life. And so the question I want to look at and answer and ask this morning is, how would you live? How should we live if we knew there was no tomorrow? If we knew tomorrow was not going to come? If there were no more tomorrows guaranteed to us, what would you change in your life today? What would you do different? How would you live different? And so this morning, we're going to look at three things that Peter gives us, three ways to live like there is no tomorrow. But before we get to that, we want to spend a moment to turn our attention, our focus, our hearts to the Lord in praise and worship, to lift up his mighty name, to forget all of the craziness for a moment that is going, around on the, around, going on around the world, and just to remember him, who he is, what he's done, and just the fact that he is so worthy of our worship. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. God, we are gathered here today to hear from you and your word. We are gathered here today to remember your great sacrifice for us in communion. And Lord, we ask, God, that as we are here today, Lord, your spirit would fill us, that you would bless us, that you would encourage us, Lord. And then, Lord, as we ask that question, what if there were no tomorrows, how would we live today? God, that you would teach us in your word some, some really important things we could put into practice to maximize every single day of our lives, to make the best use of the time that we still have left on this earth, to make the greatest impact that we can for Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We want to praise you now because you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, looking at verses 7 through 11 this morning. And yeah, answering that question. If there was no tomorrow, how would you live today? And I'm sure a lot of us have a different idea or different thoughts on how we would do that, but First Peter here in these verses, I believe, gives us three things that we could focus on that would really maximize um, our today and really put us in that frame of mind, that, uh, that life that is lived, uh, making the best use, knowing that the end is near, the end is coming, and uh, we might not have tomorrow. And so read with me here in First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter starts out by saying this, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and be sober-minded for prayer. Now, I want to address uh, a potential problem with Peter's opening words here, especially in terms of our reading it in today's time, because he says a phrase there that uh, uh, could be difficult for some. He says, the end of all things is near. Now, we all know that Peter wrote this letter 2,000 years ago. And so sometimes we could read uh, passages like that or phrases like that, and we read them with a question mark, right? The end of all things is near, right? He wrote this so long ago, and we read it that way because, you know, when we read in the New Testament, we read the writings of John and Paul and Peter, and, and all of those guys, they talked about the end times, they talked about the end of all things. They talked about the imminent return of Christ and, and, and said things like it could come at any moment, and we believe that. It is a truth today. Here in Peter, he says the end is near, and we go, how near? We read in the book of Revelation, at the very end of Revelation, Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. 
And we read things like that, and we go, well, we know how long ago they were written. How near is near? How soon is soon? So it's important to understand when you see the Word of God talk about the last days, when you see it or read about it talking about the end times, what Scripture is technically referring to there is the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. When the Bible talks about the last days and the end times, that whole piece of history, human history, is in view there. It's in the context of the entirety of human history when they say the last times, the end times, and in the last part of human history is what it's referring to. And that last part really is from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And so we are indeed living in the last days. We are living in the end times, and I believe that we are definitely in the last part of the last days, okay? Because so much prophetical prediction has been fulfilled in our lifetime, and that's a whole other study we could go into, but, but I just wanted to address that right up front, so let's set that concern aside. The end of all things is indeed near. It has been near since the, coming, the first coming of Jesus Christ, and so from then until now, and including today in our lives, every generation should therefore be living in anticipation, in great expectation of the Lord's return. Amen? All right. But the question for us this morning, whether you have one tomorrow left or a million tomorrows left, how should you live? And I think the best thing we could do is to live like there is no tomorrow. Now, I'm not talking about not making plans for tomorrow and all that kind of stuff. That's beyond the context of what I'm talking about here. But the emphasis and the priority in things that we, we do today instead of tomorrow. Pastor Gary has this phrase that he likes to, likes to encourage uh, myself and other leaders in, and it's TNT. Today, not tomorrow. Don't put off today what you can do and just procrastinate it for tomorrow because it's never going to get done that way. You know, I, 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 like many people, I have my moments where I feel like I'm a citizen of the nation of Procrasta, right? And, and I just want to put off everything as long as I possibly can, right? But Peter here gives us three ways that we can live like there's no tomorrow. Three priorities, three focuses that, that, that I think if we make a part of our everyday living, it really puts us in the mindset of that anticipation and expectation that Jesus could come at any moment. The first one is to pray harder. The second one is to love more intensely. And the third one is to serve better. And so we see the first one here in verse seven. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Alert and sober-minded. Those are the two things he's talking about here. To be alert means to take it seriously. To treat it with, with, with the gravity that it is due, okay? The phrase sober-minded means to, um, to really to get control of yourself, to sober up. Another way to think about it is to wake up, to wake up. And so Peter's writing this, and he says, look, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? Can you think of a time where Peter might have heard these words from Jesus in his history that he had before writing this letter? And if you think about the last time Peter heard something like this, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
You go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and we see there that Jesus takes a, a few of his disciples, Peter included with him, to go and pray, right? Because he's facing the cross. He's facing crucifixion. And he gets to the garden there, and Jesus says, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. And so he tells Peter, remain here. Stay awake. Jesus goes off to pray, and he comes back, and he finds them sleeping, snoozing. And Jesus says, couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you, would, that you won't enter into temptation. We all have the temptation to not take what is serious serious. We all have the temptation to put off what might be most important now till later for various reasons. I believe it's a weakness of the flesh. I believe it's a sign of the selfishness that dwells within our fallen nature. To say, you know, this is important right now. And contextually, we're talking about spiritual things. You know, I've done it, and I'm sure we've all done it. Someone has come up to us, and you go, hey, how you doing? And they go, well, I'm actually struggling. You know, life is tough, job is tough, whatever it may be. And you go, wow, I'll pray for you. And you never do. <laughs> because you go about life and you forget and, you know, you might think of them later and you're like, oh, I'm right in the middle of the thing and oh, I just remember that, well, I'll pray for them when I'm done and then you get busy again and, and you don't pray. You know, as Christians, we know and we believe that prayer is, is powerful, right? It's important, right? It changes lives, it changes the world. And yet sometimes the temptation, the weakness of our flesh is to put it off, to put it off. I believe Peter is revisiting these words here because in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was a moment where the end of Jesus was near, the end of his life, and there was a temptation to fall asleep and to not think about it. And I think one of the best ways that we could live like there is no tomorrow one of the things that we could really put at the high, high point of our priority list is prayer. To take prayer seriously, to treat it, treat it with the gravity it warrants, to exercise prayer in a way that reflects our belief on how powerful it is and, and what it does. You know, it can sometimes be difficult or uncomfortable for us when prayer comes up in a Bible study. I know I've struggled with this in the past, and the reason is because the honest truth is, is many of us don't pray enough, right? So it's like, oh boy, here goes Pastor again talking about prayer, and there's that conviction that hits, you know? We know it's important, but sometimes it just doesn't sit real high on our priority list. You know, I read a, a couple studies, and uh, recent studies, and it says the average Christian, now I don't know how many and who many, and I don't want to get into a talk about statistics and all that, but in this particular study, they, they found in, in their, their study that the average Christian prays 45 seconds a day, and that's usually over a meal. And when I read that, I was like, wow. Gosh, I could remember days where the only time I prayed was like, Jesus, thank you for the Taco Bell. And then you move on, right? I was like, oh, wow. Found another study, and it said the average evangelical conservative Christian prays for six whole hours over the course of an entire year. That same study with that same group of people found that that same group of evangelical conservative Christians that they were polling spent 90 hours a year doing their hobbies or shopping, 
100 hours a year doing sporting activities, whether it's participating or watching, and over 120 hours a year vacationing. But prayer? Six. Six hours over the course of a year. Now, please understand, I'm not trying to stand up here and guilt trip anybody, right? Shake the finger. Um, this is really a, a confession, if anything else. You know, it's a struggle I have too. I struggle just as much as anybody else in this area. And we all have the same problem, I think, in our Christian life, right? It's us. The biggest problem in my Christian life is me. <laughs> That's the biggest problem. That's the biggest obstacle. It's the biggest challenge. You know, and sometimes as we, as we live our lives as believers, as, as, as times pass, time passes, as each tomorrow comes our way and we're like, yep, there was another tomorrow and there's gonna be another one after that and another one after that, we can sometimes lose our passion for prayer. I could spend time in prayer tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll spend more time. I don't have time today. You know, and I think a lot of us when we were first saved and, and we had that moment where we realized, wait a second, I can talk to the creator of the universe and he's listening to me and he's hearing me? Wow, right? I can't do that enough. But as the tomorrows keep coming, sometimes we could find our passion to just spend time in prayer with God, waning. Sometimes prayer then could become a duty, right? It's not a I get to, it's a I have to. It's a not a, it's not a, I want to, I can't wait to do this. It's a, well, no, it's, it's good for me. I'm, I'm supposed to, I should do this. And so it becomes a duty. I read Peter here to be saying, look, as our tomorrows become fewer and fewer, as we're running out of our tomorrows, our prayers and our praying should become more serious, should become more focused and more urgent to us. Because as time takes its toll, as the reality that we have fewer tomorrows today than we did yesterday, what's going to sustain us more than anything is prayer, is a focused, urgent, serious prayer life. You know, there's people in my life, and, 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 and you know, sometimes and recently in preparing for this, I was just like, oh man, I felt convicted, and I was like, I need to renew that prayer life, and praying for those, those friends or loved ones or coworkers that don't know Jesus Christ, and, and we know God is the one that changes hearts. We believe that, and yet sometimes we could find ourselves taking our foot off the gas pedal when it comes to prayer for their salvation for one reason or another, you know, and this is just an encouragement that you might think you have tomorrow, but you might not. And so pray today. Pray today for those that, that God's putting on your heart. Pray today for the situations around the world that God is laying on your heart. Pray today for your family and your spouses and your kids. Pray today for your church and your pastors. And pray today for the ministries God has you in and the people you get to minister. But, but pray today. And if tomorrow comes, pray tomorrow too. But don't put it off. The second way I think uh, Peter writes here that we could live like there's no tomorrow is to love more intensely. Look at verses eight and nine. He says, above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Now, if you've been a, a, a Christian for, for any amount of time, hopefully you know, well, what, what was it that Jesus said was the identifying mark of a believer? 
right. He said it in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. That's the identifying mark. That's what sets Christians apart from the rest of the world. That we show love, and not a worldly love, not a selfish love, but we show a sacrificial love. We show a, a, um, in a, a, a love without condition. We, 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 we love in a way that God loves through us. He loved us, and then he loves out through us to a world that the world doesn't get. We love in a way that is different. And Peter is saying here, maintain constant love. Other translations say to love deeply or to have a fervent love or to maintain an intense love. So that phrase maintain constant love or maintain constant means, means to love strenuously. It's a word and a phrase that was used in ancient times to describe a horse at full gallop. Love like a horse at full gallop. What does that mean, <laughs> right? Well, the reason this word was used for a horse at full gallop was because a horse at full gallop is stretching, is straining its muscles, is pushing as hard as it can. It is, it is laboring with everything it has. It's like that athlete, right, as Paul uses the, the description of a runner, right, at the very end of a race. You don't let up at the end of the race. That's when you push harder than you did the whole race. You stretch out. You reach forward, right? You're, you're trying to get to the finish line so that you could win. This is the idea here of this phrase, maintain constant love. And so when you love people, give it all you got. Hold nothing back. And to be completely honest, we hold back because I think we're afraid of getting hurt. We can be afraid of getting taken advantage of but I think we need to hold back less and hold back not at all and just love and let God work out the details. Love people like you're trying to win the Love Olympics. That's what I think he's getting at here. You're going for the gold. This is maintaining constant love for one another. Now if you notice here, Peter speaks about two aspects of this love. One, that this type of love that we're encouraged to, to maintain a constant, strenuous effort towards is a protective love, and it's a proactive love. Look at verse eight. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Now in your Bible, that, that last part of the verse might be bolded or underlined or something. It's, it's made to stand out because it's a quote. Peter is quoting Proverbs chapter 10, which says, hatred stirs up conflicts but love covers all offenses. And that word covers is the important piece of understanding what he's talking about here, right? That word covers means to, 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 to obscure, to put something over. The idea is that when someone wrongs you, and it's happened to all of us, we've all been wronged by somebody. Sometimes it's friends, sometimes it's spouses, sometimes it's coworkers. We've been wronged. Some of us have been wronged by, by, by leaders in the church. Some of us have been wronged by people that, that were supposed to care about us more than anybody else. We've all been wronged in one way or another. But when that happens, we have two options. To forgive the wrong and then cover it up, set it aside, or to expose what the person has done. And the love that Peter is talking about here is the type of love that says, look, you wronged me, and so I'm not gonna go post it all over social media. 
I'm not gonna go blast it publicly to everybody I know because I wanna hurt your character, I wanna hurt your reputation, I'm gonna destroy who you are. The love Peter's talking about here is not a love that's gonna say, I'm gonna air people's dirty laundry for the world to see. This love doesn't wanna humiliate. This love doesn't wanna destroy someone's life. It's also a love that moves on in forgiving. Because that concept of covering it means that you don't keep bringing it back up. And that's a tough one for us, isn't it? Because God can forget our sin, <laughs> but we struggle with that. We can forgive, we can work to move on, but, but we still have the memory, right? We still have that memory, and I think that memory is a button the devil loves to push. And it could be a week later, a month later, years, sometimes decades later. Somebody says or does something, and you're like, you know what, 10 years ago, <laughs> you bring it back up, and they're like, I can't remember my passwords, but I could remember that, you know? But the devil is good at stirring those things up, and we bring it back up in our anger, and we throw it in each other's faces, and we hold it against each other, and, and you go, wait a second, I thought you forgave me of that. I thought we moved on from that, and that's what this love that Peter's talking about does. It, it, it doesn't bring it back up. It covers it up and walks away from it. It seeks to deal with things in private before anything ever goes public. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time for issues to go public. Matthew 18 talks about if someone sins against you, right? You go to them privately. You say, hey, you, you, you sinned against me. You hurt me. You wronged me. You know, let, can we fix this? But if the person won't receive you, if they don't listen, it says bring one or two other witnesses to the sin, right? Look, this person saw what you did to me, so, so it, it happened, and I'm just, I'm, I just want to fix it. But if they still don't listen, it goes on to say you widen the circle and you widen the circle, and eventually it becomes a public thing. But what he's talking about here is in general, have a love for one another that is protective, that starts out privately, a love that spreads itself out in order to cover, to conceal, to move on from what has been done. To say, I want to forgive you and put this aside. And it does that for the sake of repentance, for forgiveness, for healing, for restoration, right? Someone does wrong to you. It is hard for them to, to, to heal and to grow from that if you keep bringing it up and throwing it in their face over and over again. And that's why he says, look, forgive and set it aside as hard as it is. Say, God, help me to do that. And in the context of today's study, do that today. Don't wait for tomorrow. But do that today. You might have someone in your life this morning that, that needs some protective love from you. They've wronged you in some way, and, and you need to go to them and, and start that process privately. And maybe you're like right now going, you know what, I've already been dealing with it publicly. I've been gossiping about it. I've been telling all my friends about it, and, and everybody, I've been you know, just slamming this person's character. But you know what I haven't done? I haven't gone to them yet to deal with it. And maybe God is telling you this morning, repent of the gossip, repent of the slandering, and go to that person and seek to express love to them that covers a multitude of sins. But not only is this love protective, it's also proactive. Look at verse nine. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. <laughs> hospitable, that word means love or loving the stranger. We get our word in the English hospital from this word. Hospitals are, are systems and places set up to treat people, 
to take care of people, whether you know them or not. Right, and so this word hospitable, it means to love the stranger, and this was an important concept in the early church, a very important concept, because in the early church, you didn't have churches like this. You didn't, you didn't have central places where the body all came together at once, but, but the church met in different homes, and it was smaller gatherings as, as the church was growing and just getting off the ground, and so, so people would meet in all these different homes, and sometimes what you would have is traveling preachers, traveling pastors and teachers and evangelists that would go from place to place to bring the word of God and the encouragement to the church in different locations, and these, these people would show up, they would come to town, and they would need a place to stay. Now, back in those days, there was no Hiltons and no Sheratons. The inns that did exist were kind of really seedy joints, so like you didn't want to stay there. And so these people would come to town, and they would need someone in the church to open their doors to them, to say, you can stay here. You're a stranger to me. I don't know you, but please, let me, let me minister to your needs. Let me give you a place of rest. Let me minister to your soul here by being hospitable. This was hospitality in its original context, to show love to the stranger, to proactively go out of your way to open your place to them, to proactively go out of your way to to bring rest and refreshment to the stranger. So you had these two aspects of love, the protective part of it and this proactive part of it. And this is what Peter is encouraging here. You know, we all have moments, I think, every day now to be proactively loving towards those who might need help. You know, as a church, we try and do that with lifeguard and try and meet practical needs of people that are hungry, and, and, but, but all of us have opportunity to do that. And as the Lord leads, I would encourage you to say, if there's something that, that I can do today, don't put it off until tomorrow. Because that love you show that person could be the very catalyst of introducing them to Jesus Christ. And so be hospitable. But for a quick moment here, you know, I'm gonna encourage all of us to take a little personal reflection, okay? No glaring at one another, all right? No looking at the person sitting next to you, mm-hmm. None of that. Are you maintaining constant love for one another? Are we doing that, right? In your love for others, are you, are you stretching and straining, giving it your all as if you're trying to win the gold at loving? Are you being protective and proactive in your love? You know, and, and, and it's just an easy place to take inventory. You start with, with the person closest to you. That might be your spouse. Am I loving them protectively and proactively? And then you go, okay, and, and what about my kids? And if you don't have kids, you know, maybe it's your dog. Okay, did I kick my dog today? Don't do that, you know? But you, you start with those closest to you, and then you go, what about my, what about my immediate family? What about my extended family? And just, and just think about it. And ask that the Lord would reveal to you places where, like, man, maybe you've been doing great here, but, but, but the Lord's saying, hey, I want, you to, I want you to adjust some things over here. And then notice it says something very important about hospitality. It says, do this without complaining. <laughs> Why do you have to add that, right? Come on, dude. White out in the Bible. Without complaining. A lot of us can be very good at being hospitable with complaining, right? That, that phrase without complaining means to, or complaining there means to mumble under your breath. <laughs> Stinking person, why don't they get a job? <laughs> you know? 
You can have the right actions with the wrong attitude. You know, you can do, you can do all the right stuff, but your heart isn't in it. And Peter is saying to do it without complaining. To do it with a knowledge and an understanding that this is my opportunity to love and to minister to someone. To show them a type of love that God wants me to show them. You know, some might say the biggest disease today isn't cancer or AIDS, anything like that. It's lovelessness. You look around the world today and you can see such a massive amount of people around the world. Maybe there's some in this room. Maybe, maybe you're watching online that just feel unloved. They feel uncared for. They feel like nobody notices, nobody cares. And that should never be the case when Christians are around. It should never be the case, you know? And, and I've been so blessed over the years as a part of Hosanna that, you know, this body here, you guys have been so, um, so good at showing this type of love to people in the community around. I mean, I know we all have struggles and our hiccups and stuff, but, but the testimony of the church, the testimony of Christians should be love. And the reason, I think, comes from Romans 5.5. 5. It says this in Romans 5.5, 5, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts. If God is pouring his love into our hearts, guess what that means? It's never gonna run out. It's never gonna run out. So, so there's never a situation where I, I just can't love him anymore. I just can't love her anymore. False. That's a lie. That's impossible because you have an unlimited capacity to love because God himself is pouring his love out into your heart. If you are his child, you are his, his part of his family, his love is being poured out into you and you have an unlimited capacity to love. Now, it may be hard to love right now. You may not want to love right now, but it is never that you can't, ever that you can't. And since that is a true statement, scripturally supported, nobody in your circle your sphere of influence should ever feel unloved and uncared for because God is pouring it out in your life and he keeps pouring it out in your life and he never stops. So we had pray harder, we had love more intensely, and the third thing I think to, to live today like there is no tomorrow is to serve better. Look at verse 10. He said, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever, amen. So there's five things here I wanna point out. One, every single Christian believer has a spiritual gift that is meant to be in service or ministry to others. He says, let each one of you, each one of you has received a gift. Every single one of you in this room, every single one of you online, if you are a Christian, God is your Lord and Savior. You've accepted his sacrifice for you. His Holy Spirit has been poured out into your life. You have been given a spiritual gift that is meant to be used in service to others. Some spiritual enabling, some spiritual capacity to help someone in some way. Two, Look at verse 11 there. He says, if anyone speaks, let him speak. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides. Your gift may be different than someone else's gifting. 
that is okay and that is by design. If everybody was the, the, the preacher, then nobody's the preacher. If everybody was the administrator, then nobody's the administrator. If everybody was the foot, the body would never get anywhere. Well, we'd probably get everywhere, but we wouldn't accomplish much when we got there, right? I thought about that after I said it. But the idea here is that, that, that your gift may be different from someone else's. Three, he says, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others. Whatever gift you have, you should use it to serve other people. It's not just for you. It may be a blessing to you, but it's not just for you. Use it to serve other people. Four, some gifts are noticeable, obvious, public, outward. Some gifts are not. Just because you're gifting the, the thing that God has given you to minister to meet other people's needs isn't something that is seen publicly doesn't mean it's not important. The person whose gift is to privately go to people in private prayer and to encourage them privately is critical. And then five, the reason we share our gifts, it says there is to glorify God, right? It says, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. The reason we serve, the reason we use the gifts God's given us to minister to other people is to glorify God. It's to glorify his name, which seems to infer that if you are not involved in sharing the gift that God has given to you, you are not glorifying God with your life as much as you should be or could be. Now that's a sobering thought, isn't it? that I could be diminishing the display of God's glory by not getting involved in sharing myself, sharing the gifts God's given me to serve others. I could be directly diminishing <laughs> the display of God's glory. It's important that we're involved in serving. And some of us, maybe the, the challenge today is like, yeah, I do need to serve better. I do have gifts, I do have things in my life that I know God's given me, but I don't use them for, for serving anybody else. And maybe God's speaking to you today and say, hey, get involved. Get involved. But notice in verse 10 there, he says, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Good stewards. That means wisely handling what's been given to you. And what has been given to us? The grace of God. God. And what is it called there? He calls it varied. Other translations use the word manifold, the manifold grace of God, right? The word literally means many-colored the many-colored grace of God. It's a word that was used to describe a garment that, that was like beautiful in, 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 in just all kinds of different color, colors and gorgeous and brightly, um, brightly dyed. It's, it's what this word was used for. So what he's saying is that the grace of God is like this. When God holds you up and shines the grace of God through your life, the color that might come out of it is blue. He holds up someone else and shines the grace of God through their lives and the color might be green. It might be yellow. It might be purple, orange. Some of you, the grace of God shines through your life and the color comes out polka dotted and tie dyed and wild and, and just, you know, but, but the idea is like, like we're, we're this prism in that sense and as the grace of God shines into our lives, something different comes from us because God has given each one of us a gift to serve others in a different way. The overarching idea is that the grace of God is not monotone. It's a very varied, multi-hued, colorful tone 
Everyone has a gift. Everyone has a gift. And you should share that gift so that God's many-colored, many-hued grace would shine through into people's lives in this world. And when that happens, when the world sees God's people shining his grace, and they see all the different colors, they're just like, wow, that's so beautiful. That's so amazing. This is what Peter is describing. Paul used the illustration of the body, right? The many parts of the body accomplishing the different functions. Peter here is using light, the many different hues and colors of light. And the point is, is that the church needs every gift that God has given to all his people. The church needs every gift that every single one of you have to accomplish the work God is calling us to do as the body of Christ. No gift is too small. No gift is, is, is too irrelevant. No person is too insignificant. It doesn't matter. God has given you something to minister to others with. And the progression is this. The gift comes from God to you, and then the gift flows from you to someone else. And so the question this morning is, is that flow being stopped? Is there a gift that God has given you that you've never taken the time to discover? Is there a gift that God's given you and, 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 and you've, never, you, you've never tried to figure out what it is? You've never tried to serve uh, here in your church, right? Just to say, you know, God, I want to serve to discover where my personality, where my gifting, where my skills and traits fit in because maybe you don't know yet and, and that's okay, but are you trying to figure out what it is? And some of us, sometimes we could sit and we go, nope, I'm not going to do nothing until God sends me a, a sign from heaven, and your gifting might be, you're a fantastic electrician. And the lights are flickering all over the building. Nope, I ain't gonna do nothing until God tells me. Maybe your gifting is that you're, you're, you're that social butterfly that just, just, just make friends with everybody. You could strike up conversation with everybody. And so instead of using that gift to, 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 to get into people's lives and find out what their needs are and to share the gospel with them. You're always talking about all these people. You talk to everybody because it's so easy for you. Yeah, I don't know what my gift is. I'm just waiting for God to show it to me. And you do that with hundreds of people a day. And your gift is in action right there to be used for his glory. Maybe you know your giftedness and you're just not using it to help anybody. Well, I think the message for you today is to serve better. To serve better. You know, in World War II, um, there was a French village that was bombed. And this village had a statue that was a well-known statue all over the countryside. And it was a statue of Jesus Christ. And so during the bombing in this area and the bombing of this village, this statue was completely destroyed. It was shattered into pieces. But it was such a beloved statue that the townspeople went out and gathered every single piece of the statue that they could find and held on to it until after the war was over. And when the war was over, they come together, they came back together to, to rebuild the statue and they glued it all back together, right? So they managed to find every single piece of the statue except the hands. And so there was a statue of Jesus in the middle of this village with no hands. And so one day somebody put a plaque under the statue and the plaque simply said this, he has no hands but yours. And it's a concept that I, I just really want us all to internalize. You know, Jesus has no hands but yours. He has no feet but yours. 
He has no mouth but yours. We are the body of Christ. And the body functions best and accomplishes what God wants it to when every part is doing its part. You know, we've experienced it, we've seen it when the human body, when certain parts stop working, right? It throws everything out of whack. The other parts have to work harder to compensate. And they burn out quicker because they're doing what they shouldn't be doing because the other parts aren't doing what they should be doing. It's an illustration that pictures all of us. We are the body of Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you to find your gift. If you don't know what that is, get involved in some way, whether it's here or in ministry or you know, just, just serving to say, you know, well, I think I'm good at this. Let me, let me see if that, and, and get prayer and, and talk to leaders and stuff and figure it out. Because I can guarantee you, when you start doing the thing you know God called you to do, created you to do, man, there is no greater sense of satisfaction. There's no greater sense of purpose. But Christian, we belong to the most amazing organization in the entire world. It's the church. An organization made up of broken people with messed up backgrounds, (laughs) transformed and saved by the love of Jesus Christ, pulled together to accomplish the impossible. And we see it happen every single day. We get to be a part of that. I don't know how you think about the church, but many in the world today don't think very highly about the church. Especially in our Western culture, it's getting worse and worse. But but yeah, we belong to the best organization in the world. And the reason why is because we have something that works universally. Right, you take the gospel of Jesus Christ to any country, in any language, anywhere in the world, and you unleash it, and guess what'll happen? Lives will be changed. Our organization has offices worldwide. Every single country on the planet, every culture has some expression of the local Christian church. We have a pretty good benefits package right now, right? We have peace, we have meaning, we have cause, and we have the best retirement package. We belong to the best organization that has ever existed, and everybody can be a part of it but there are so many that don't even know that yet. And we have the opportunity to tell them, to pray that God would reach them. And guess what, guys? We're running out of tomorrows. We're running out of tomorrows, so let's not put it off anymore because all we have is today. And so moving forward in our lives, what's our slogan gonna be, right? What's our branding gonna be? Less of Christ. No, it should be more for Christ. We can't ever get to a place where, where we feel that, you know, well, I, I've been saved for X amount of years. I've done my duty. I can let my foot off the gas pedal. I can coast. No, it, it, it should be as, as it has always been to live for Christ today like tomorrow isn't gonna come. And so God, what do you want me to do today? for you and your kingdom. Let me do that, Lord, because the end is near. Our time is almost up. And so when prayer is passionate, when love is constant, when serving is prominent, then God is glorified, the church is edified, and the world is notified that God is real. And that is the message we have to take to the world around us. And he is real. He is real. He's alive. He came to this earth. He lived a life. 
He died for our sins. He rose again to give us new life. He is all that matters. And we need to let people know. We who have been saved by his sacrifice, we're called to never forget that. And that's what we do in communion. That's what we do when we gather together to take communion. We come together to remember what he did for us, what that accomplished for us, and what that allows us to do moving forward. You know, when we think of communion and we focus on it, it helps us to not get distracted by what ultimately doesn't matter in the light of eternity. You know, when you get to forever, nobody's gonna ask you, hey, what, at what position on the corporate ladder did you rise to? Nobody's gonna ask, how much money did you have in the bank? How much did you keep? Nobody's gonna ask, hey, did, what kind of clothes did you wear? Did you wear the fancy stuff or the not so fancy? Nobody, nobody's gonna ask those things. The question's gonna be, what did you do with Jesus Christ? And so remembering his sacrifice in communion keeps us, helps us from getting distracted by what ultimately doesn't matter in the light of eternity and to start living as if tomorrow isn't gonna come. Today matters. This is why we celebrate communion. And so all of you should have a communion cup. I actually didn't get one. If someone could bring me one, that would be great. Oh, I think Chris is coming. Thank you so much. We have these little communion cups we've been using for the last couple years because, um, well, they're kind of convenient, honestly. And so the cup you have, it's a little plastic cup, and on the top, thank you, there's like a little thin plastic piece, and then there's a, like a thicker plastic tab. Right now, I'd like you to pull back the thin plastic piece on the top. This will reveal the cracker here as a part of communion. You know, when Jesus took the bread at that last supper with the disciples, he took the bread, he gave thanks for it, and he broke it, and he said these very important words. This is my body, which is for you. This is my body, which is for you. And we do this in remembrance of what he went through for us. He wanted us to, to remember, to know what this bread represents, because it represents his sinless, his sinless body given for us. A body that, that, that never knew sin, but took the punishment for all of the sin of all of mankind, but let's personalize it, took your sin, my sin, as the full wrath of God was poured out on him in your place, in my place. And he was the only one that could do that because he was the only one that was perfect. He was the only one that was sinless and without his sacrifice, without him being broken, without him taking the wrath of God in our place, without that happening, the day we would run out of tomorrows would be the worst day of our existence because that would be a day that we would stand before God without anything in our ledger to forgive us. It would be a day where we would get the opportunity that many are choosing today to go pay for their own sins for themselves for free ever, forever. Now that's a horrible thing because it's an eternity in hell and judgment. 
And so this bread helps us remember that Jesus took our place on the cross. He took the criminal's place on the cross. He took our death penalty so that we could be forgiven. Every sinful action, every sinful thought, every sinful cause, every sinful effect, all of it demands the justice of God Almighty. But because he loved you, because he loved me so much, he took that judgment on himself in our place, perfectly reconciling our relationship to him, staving off the very wrath of God as he took it on himself so that we wouldn't have to. That's a message the world needs to hear. And there's people that we need to pray for. There's people we need to show love to. There's people we need to serve better today that they would have the opportunity of coming to know that truth fully. We remember that truth this morning because it changed our very lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you, God, that your body was broken for us. Lord, we see in your life the very example of what we're learning today, God, as you prayed for us in John 17. As you prayed in the garden for what was to come. As you expressed love in the most protective and proactive way possible where you went to the cross for us and were brutalized in our place. Where, God, you served us in a way nobody ever has, Lord, where your word says that no greater love has one for another than to lay down their life for them. And God, you laid down your life for us. We remember that, Lord. That when the perfect time was, 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 was here, when the, when the time was set for you to make that sacrifice, you did it so that we would be forgiven, that we would be saved. God, thank you so much for loving us this much. Thank you for loving us more than we will ever imagine, God. Let's partake together. All right, for those of you that are in the room, that little thicker plastic tab, carefully pull that back and it'll kind of open the cup and reveal the juice here. You know, when Jesus took the cup, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, in the Old Testament, there was a system set up where they would go and make sacrifices, and they had to do the sacrifices every year, and they had to sacrifice for this, and to sacrifice for that, and sacrifice after sacrifice. Because sin demands payment. And so there was a system in place under the old covenant where they could bring in a bull or a turtle dove or a goat or a lamb and the blood that was shed by that animal symbolically covered their sin. But that's a different type of covering than we've been talking about today. That was a covering that said the sin is still there. We're just gonna not look at it. But when Jesus came and he shed his blood for us, he said, this is, this is the new covenant in my blood. That as his blood was shed in our place, that blood would wash us clean of all sin. It didn't just cover it up. It got rid of it. It dealt with it once and for all forever. 
And that's why I said earlier that when God forgives you and I of our sin, he says it is as far from his memory as the east is from the west. He doesn't remember it. You come back and you say, God, you know, remember that thing I did yesterday? And he goes, what are you talking about? You're spotless. You're sinless. That humbles me to think about that. Because we all know <laughs> the struggles we have. And yet the reality is Jesus said, look, do this in remembrance of me because I want you to remember that you are washed clean. I want you to remember that you are born again. I want you to remember that you have a clean record, that you've been made alive, you've been given a brand new heart. You are now able to do what you could never do in your old nature. You can live for God. You can live in obedience to God. You could love him and you could love others with a love that is beyond your capacity. Because the blood of Christ has cleansed us of all sin, purifying us. And the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And now we get to live each day, forgetting what's behind us, forgetting the old ways, our old selfish nature. We get to live in the eager anticipation of his coming, knowing that the end is nearer today than it ever has been. And we get to live each day spiritually empowered to, to pray passionately, to love constantly, and to serve intentionally as if there was no tomorrow. On our own, we're selfish people. But with God in our lives, purified by his blood, we are people that really get the opportunity to glorify the holiness of who God is. And so we remember that because he shed his blood for us, because we've accepted his sacrifice on our behalf, that we are indeed children of God, beloved, saved, transformed for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. You didn't just take the wrath, the punishment that was due to us, but then you also paid the price to wipe away the ledger of, of, of what we owed, Lord, in our sin. God, that you washed us clean. You didn't just pretend the sin isn't there. You got rid of it. Lord, that is something we can never do on our own. That is something that is only possible because of you, God, because of your great love for us. Lord, it is in you that we are transformed into people we can never be on our own. And so, Lord, help us to live lives in remembrance of the cost of our salvation. What that salvation purchased for us and what it allows us to do today, to live for you today. Lord, we know the end is near. And we know you're coming soon, and we look forward to that. But, Lord, help us to maximize our effect on the world around us today for you in your name empowered by your Holy Spirit because we are your children. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name. Let's partake together. Well, Father, we, uh, we ask, Lord, that you would just use us. We submit ourselves to you, God. We ask that you would fill us to overflowing with your Spirit. God, I pray 
I pray, God, that you would give us opportunity to be lights on a hill to those that need light, that we would communicate hope to those that need hope. I pray, God, for anybody in this room or watching online that, that, that believes they have a gift but they're not sure what it is, God, I pray, Lord, you would reveal it. God, if it's your will to do something supernaturally, do that. You can do that, Lord. But God, that we wouldn't use our desire to see supernatural signs as an excuse to not get up and try and figure out what it is you've gifted us with. Lord, I think the reality might be that we may be more aware of our gifts than we want to let on to. So God, help us to step out and to serve better to maintain a constant love for those around us, protectively and proactively, God. And to pray urgently, Lord, because we know the days are short. We love you so much. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Let's worship.